Hello there, fellow Flyers. Welcome to yet another episode of Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Today is the 27th episode of PCPC, and for episode 27, we're going to be taking a look at Pan Am Flight 103, a scheduled flight from London, England to New York City on Wednesday, December 21st, 1988. I would like to express my profound amazement and appreciation towards the PCPC Patreon crew. Every day, more and more members are signing up to support the podcast, and we really are sincerely grateful. Each one of you signing us up makes us just want to research that much harder and give you the quality show that you deserve. So thanks so much, guys. We're going to start a new round of nominations for a future show soon. And if you haven't checked it out yet, check out patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod that's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod you can sign up for a dollar a month and help keep this little podcast afloat in the world thanks again guys joining us on the show today is a living saint she's an internationally ranked chess player and daily coffee drinker miss tessa andrade how's it going tess hello michael hello everyone Uh, You've been watching any good TV or movies during quarantine? Actually, yes. I just watched the cult classic Revenge of the Body Snatchers. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've been really drawn to apocalyptic content lately, which Mm -hmm. you can do with that information what you will. I'll do plenty with it. (laughs) What was the plot of the movie? Honestly, I couldn't quite tell you. In a nutshell, alien life forms come down to Earth. They start duplicating humans to infiltrate humanity. Mm, Sounds like communism on the run. Exactly. Very much McCarthyism, Red Scare inspired. Mm -hmm. What about you? What have you been watching? I just finished watching Dark on Netflix. It's a German show, helpful with learning German, but it was the most confusing show I've ever seen. Show has turned my brain into scrambled eggs. Yeah, that's how I like to make my eggs. Yeah, well, it's time for me to watch a Disney film, I think. Tess, I've noticed online that hazmat helmets are increasing in popularity with flyers due to the coronavirus. Could you see yourself purchasing one in the near future and donning it on your next flight? Absolutely. I think it's a very bold and CDC-approved fashion statement, Michael. Yeah, uh, the ones I've seen online look pretty cool. They look pretty futuristic and astronaut-inspired. I think it'd be cool if people got a little backpack too and you had like an air conditioning unit on the back and you just were blasted with cold air on the inside the entire time. Maybe even some little speakers that connect to audio on your phone or the TV in front of you. Oh, so you want like central air and a sound system installed on yours. Yeah, I just want the comforts of life. Is that too much to ask? I don't think it's too much to ask, no. Well, Tess, American Airlines announced on July 15th that they'll be laying off up to 25,000 workers this fall due to the drop in demand for air travel because of the coronavirus outbreak. This represents a 30% cut of its frontline workers, flight attendants, maintenance, terminal employees, pilots. A week ago, United Airlines announced that they'll be laying off as many as 36,000 workers by this upcoming fall due to the shrinking number of passengers looking to travel. Travel has increased in the United States compared to where it was back in April. TSA announced that for the first week of July 2020, passenger travel was 27% of what it was in 2019. That's up from the 4% figure in mid-April when everything was completely shut down, but still a far cry from 100% recovery. Southwest Airlines has yet to announce any layoffs, but Southwest CEO Gary Kelly recently said that layoffs may lay in the company's future if there isn't a tripling of passenger demand over the months ahead. 
So far, Delta has yet to announce any potential layoffs, but the airline has stated that 20% of their workforce has accepted early retirement, which has helped the company stay balanced with the low travel demand. So Tess, at first, airlines were able to keep all their employees due to government aid programs. Those programs are expiring, and it looks like layoffs are in the pipeline. Do you think this is a permanent trend for the airline industry? Do you think air travel will be down for years and all these people will need to find new careers? Or is this just a temporary hiccup and things will be back to normal pretty soon? I think that's the big question, Michael. I don't think anyone really knows. Mm -hmm. Um, I really hope that things return to normal within the next year, but um, I don't think anyone's really holding their breath. Yeah, I think it all has to do with passenger demand. If passengers don't show up, they don't need a lot of people to work. Exactly. It's kind of interesting how the restaurant industry, airline industry, hotel industry, you know, massage therapists, gyms, retail sector, dentists, anyone that has close contact with another human being is basically out of a job right now. Yeah, it seems like we're waiting out a one to two year worldwide storm and all you can really do is hunker down, batten down the hatches and wait for it to pass. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, we'll keep an eye on any announcements from airlines and let you know of any updates in the weeks ahead. On today's show, we have two sponsors and Tess is going to tell us about the first one. Thanks, Michael. Do you ever look up when you're hanging out with your family and realize that every single one of you is on your phone? With everything that's going on in the world, it's that much more important to take the time and connect with one another. Enter Hunt a Killer, the game that gets you off your phone and thrusts you and your loved ones into an ongoing murder mystery investigation. You'll sift through piles of documents, evidence, audio recordings, and case files, eliminating suspects until you crack the case and catch the killer. If you're a detective that prefers to work solo, Hunt a Killer is designed so that you can play your way, be it alone, with your cat, or with your quarantine crew. Hunt a Killer starts at $25 a box, meaning that you could have more fun at home for less than the price of a night out, but who the heck is going out these days anyway? It's like if a Netflix true crime documentary and an escape room had a baby that was really good looking. Plus, part of the proceeds for every box goes to the Cold Case Foundation, an organization that helps with real-life cold cases, which is pretty cool if you ask me. It's the perfect activity for you and your lockdown posse. You can work on a fun project together without having to leave the comfort of your own home. Right now, just for our listeners, you can go to huntakiller.com and use the code PLANECRASH for 20% off your first box. Again, make sure to use PLANECRASH, that's one word, for a 20% discount and to show your support for PCPC. That sounds pretty cool. It sounds like you get to be a real-life Sherlock Holmes. I know, totally. It's like living in a true crime TV show that you get to feel and touch. I'm into it. Hunt a Killer. Uh, we also have BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's perfect for this moment in time on planet Earth when we're all stuck at home and could use an objective, intelligent person to make sure that we're practicing healthy mental habits and staying on the right track. BetterHelp works outside the typical 9 to 5 of traditional therapy. You can meet with someone on your schedule and in tune with your needs. You can message your therapist 24 hours a day and have weekly video sessions where you used to have to fight traffic and look for parking. Now you can just have a therapy session from the comfort of your own home. For 10% off your first month, visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. 
That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thanks to BetterHelp. I like to mention on every episode of PCPC that I'm not an expert in aviation. I'm not even a pilot. We started this podcast because we were abnormally nervous flyers and wanted to try and address that anxiety we felt by learning more about how planes fly and how these crashes of the past improve the safety of air travel. We are aware that what we're discussing is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. Someone's mother, father, brother, or sister lost their life, and we don't want to be insensitive or disrespectful of that fact. We just see these incidents as historical events that are worth discussing. It's interesting to learn how each of these accidents helped build air travel into the very safe mode of transportation that it is today. You ready to get started, Tess? Oh, I'm ready. Pan Am Flight 103 was a scheduled flight that originated in Frankfurt, Germany, made a stopover in London, England, a plane change, and was scheduled to carry on to JFK Airport in New York before flying on to its final destination, which was Detroit, Michigan in the United States. The date of the flight was Wednesday, December 21st, 1988. The plane used for Flight 103 was a Boeing 747-121. This particular plane was the 15th 747 manufactured by Boeing. It was issued its Certificate of Airworthiness on February 12, 1970. From 1970 to 1979, the plane was named Clipper Morning Light before changing its name and becoming Clipper Made of the Seas. So what's up with these Clipper names for the planes? A Clipper is a fast-sailing ship popular in the late 19th century. Well, in the 1930s, Pan Am pioneered the commercial aviation market, acquiring a small fleet of flying boats. Pan Am decided to name each of their flying boats. They had the American Clipper, Yankee Clipper, Southern Clipper, and so on. In the early 1930s, Pan Am flew consolidated Commodores, Sikorsky S-38s, Martin M-130s, before moving on to the Boeing 314 Clipper in 1939. At the time, flying on the Boeing 314 with Pan Am was a luxurious experience. A round-trip ticket from England to New York would set you back around $12,000 in today's money. So these flights were for the super rich at the time, but it was a cutting-edge experience for 1939. I imagine it was kind of comparable to taking a private Learjet on a journey today. You no longer had to sit around on an ocean liner for days to cross the Atlantic, now you could do it in less than 24 hours and travel in luxurious style with exclusive company. Six-course meals would be served from white-gloved waiters. Seats could be easily converted into a bed. There were separate dressing rooms for men and women. This was a high-end travel experience in a flying boat. So that's where the name Clipper came from. Once Pan Am moved on from using flying boats to flying airliners like the DC-4, DC-7, and Boeing 707, they kept the tradition around and kept naming all their planes Clippers and used it as their call sign for radio communications. In the early 1960s, the president of Pan Am, Juan Tripp, asked Boeing to develop a much larger plane than the Boeing 707. International tourism and travel was a booming industry, and the planes of the 1960s were relatively small. This resulted in heavy congestion at airports, with only small planes available to tackle the needs of thousands of passengers looking to travel the world. 
Juan Trip rationalized that if Pan Am had a massive plane that could carry two to three times the amount of people that these smaller planes did, it would clear up congestion and also help his airline make some sweet do-re-mi in the process. This plane that Boeing developed for Pan Am in the mid-60s would be the 747. Pan Am would place the first order for 25 747s in April 1966 at a price tag of $525 million. On January 15, 1970, First Lady of the United States Pat Nixon, wife of President Richard Nixon, christened Pan Am's first 747 spraying red, white, and blue water instead of champagne on the outside of the new plane. The plane used for Pan Am Flight 103 was delivered to Pan Am a month after the ceremony in February 1970. At the time of the incident, Clipper Made of the Seas had 72,464 flight hours and 16,497 flight cycles. The captain of Pan Am Flight 103 was Captain James McQuarrie. Captain McQuarrie was 55 years old at the time of the incident. He started working for Pan Am in 1964. So he had 24 years of experience with the company. Captain McQuarrie graduated from Boston University, served three years in the U.S. Navy, and was a major in the Massachusetts Air National Guard. He lived in Kensington, New Hampshire, where he enjoyed working on his 200-year-old historic home and restoring vintage cars. He had a wife and two children. Captain McQuarrie had 10,910 flight hours, 4,107 hours flying Boeing 747s. The first officer of Flight 103 was First Officer Ray Wagner. First Officer Wagner was 52 years old at the time of the incident. The First Officer joined Pan Am in 1966. He was also a member of the New Jersey Air National Guard. First Officer Wagner was from Pennington, New Jersey, was an active member of the community known as the local diving coach at the Pembroke Swim Club. He was also a soccer coach. He loved Volkswagen Beetle vehicles and was said to have up to 30 of them at one point in his life. First Officer Wagner had 11,855 flight hours, 5,517 hours flying Boeing 747s. The flight engineer for Flight 103 was Flight Engineer Jerry Averett. Flight Engineer Averett was 46 years old at the time. Originally working with National Airlines in 1967, he joined Pan Am after the two airlines merged. He was from Westminster, California, and he was known as a family man, loved traveling and surfing with his son. His neighbor said he was known as the handyman of the neighborhood, could fix anything, was always willing to help anyone out. Flight engineer Averett had a wife and two kids. He had 8,068 flight hours and 487 hours on Boeing 747s. There were 13 flight attendants on Flight 103, the three men in the cockpit, and 243 passengers for a total of 259 human beings on board. So our flight today, Flight 103, is taking place in December of 1988. What's going on around the world in 1988? What's the climate of international relations like at the time? Are there any increased tensions between players on the world stage that we should know about? Well, I'm sure that many of you familiar with an earlier episode of PCPC on Iran Air Flight 655 will recall that in 1988, there's a war going on between Iran and Iraq. Both countries have been slugging it out for the previous eight years since 1980, and they're fighting, competing for power and greater influence in the Middle East. 
to finance the war effort, both Iraq and Iran are trying to sell the resource that they have in great abundance, oil. They want to convert their oil into cash so they can make more guns, tanks, and missiles to battle their enemy. Both countries are trying to ship their product in massive oil tankers to international buyers. Each country is also aware that if the other side is successful in selling their oil, that just means more ammunitions, greater resources for fighting the war. So Iraq and Iran start trying to bomb each other's oil tankers, because if you can bomb the other side's oil tanker, that means less bullets and tanks coming in your direction. Once these attacks on oil tankers pick up, the world's oil supply lines are at risk, and Western democracies see that their economies are being put in danger due to this Iran-Iraq war. So the United States sends in U.S. Navy warships to play a policeman of the seas role, escorting tankers across the Persian Gulf and out to open sea, protecting the oil supply chain. In a sense, they're saying, we don't care about your little Middle Eastern war. Just stop messing up our access to oil. We need this stuff to keep our economies going. So U.S. Navy ships are sent to the Persian Gulf, and on July 3rd, 1988, the warship the USS Vincennes is involved in a skirmish with Iranian gunboats and mistakenly identifies an Iranian passenger flight, Iran Air Flight 655, as a military plane. As the Iranian passenger plane heads in their direction, the Americans think it's a military plane headed towards them, possibly to bomb them. And the plane isn't responding to any of their radio transmissions. So the Americans end up shooting two missiles at the Airbus A300, blowing it out of the sky, killing 290 innocent human beings that were just trying to hop the gulf and travel to Dubai. The Iranians are understandably pissed even though the Americans were completely dejected once they realized their mistake. The Iranians think the Americans might have done it on purpose to indirectly say, we're joining the war and joining the side of Iraq. In response to the downing of Flight 655, the following day at the Iranian embassy in London, Iranian official Mohammad Basti stated, we will of course, in due course, have our own response to the American crimes, I do not disclose what kind of response would be from our side, but naturally it will be an appropriate and measured response to fit the magnitude of the crime. So this event happened five and a half months prior to Pan Am Flight 103. Something just to keep in the back of our minds as the story unfolds. Another source of international tensions in the 1980s to consider when looking at Flight 103 is the frayed relationship between Western democracies and Libya at the time. In 1973, Libya, under the leadership of Muammar Gaddafi, declared that the Gulf of Sidra was to be part of its internal waters. The Gulf of Sidra is located off the northern coast of Libya in the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at Libya on a map, you'll see that along its northern border that there's a large indentation in the center of the northern coastline. Kind of looks like a gigantic monster took a massive bite out of its northern coast. The waters in this large indentation is the Gulf of Sidra. So in 1973, Libya says to the international community that this entire body of water is under their control. It's part of their country under their sovereignty. Therefore, instead of the standard 12 nautical miles from the coastline before international waters start, 
They want a 62 nautical mile buffer zone before international waters begin. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Why did Libya want more of that territory? What was in it for them? They want dominance. They want control of this body of water that's close to their territory, and they want an exclusive fishing zone. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Gaddafi decides to be increasingly dramatic and says that anyone crossing this new sea border that Libya is now claiming is crossing a line of death, and they will be provoking a military response from the Libyans. Well, of course, the international community isn't thrilled to be threatened by the Libyan leader. So throughout the 70s and early 80s, the U.S. Navy conducts naval exercises in the area just to communicate to Libya that their claim on these waters isn't recognized by them. Through the 70s, the Americans fly reconnaissance missions over these waters. Libyans send up a couple fighter jets to scare them off and fire some warning shots. It's a bit of a cat and mouse game. Reminded me of a couple kids that are supposed to be sharing a toy, and one of the kids gets bold, declares that the toy is completely his, so whenever he isn't looking, the other kid picks up the toy, plays with it for a little bit, licks it, just tries to show that the claim on the toy won't be recognized under any international children's toy ownership law. Ah, licking someone else's toy, a classic move. I don't recommend the licking method, but it has been shown to work. So there are a few encounters between Libyan and American planes in the 70s and in 1980, but no major incidents. Then in 1981, President Ronald Reagan assumes office, and he authorizes the U.S. Navy to send two aircraft carriers into the disputed area to perform military exercises, which ratchets up the tensions, culminating in the Gulf of Sidra incident on August 19, 1981. During this encounter, the Americans flew a jet inside the 62-mile nautical zone that Libya was claiming to provoke a response. Two Libyan jets took off to confront the American plane, and two American F-14s were fired upon by the Libyans during the incident. After they were fired upon, the American F-14 shot down the two Libyan planes, and the Libyan pilots ejected from their aircraft. The next notable event was in 1984. In a sensational and aggressive display, the Libyan Air Force and Navy used two radio ships owned by the Libyan government as target practice, sinking both ships in the Gulf of Sidra. It was a provocative and violent action. Next, in June 1985, an Islamic terrorist group hijacked TWA Flight 847, forcing the plane to land, killing an American member of the U.S. Navy that was on board, and then they made demands for hundreds of Shia prisoners to be released. Later in the same year, on December 27, 1985, Airports in Rome and Vienna were simultaneously attacked by terrorists with grenades and gunfire. 15 innocent people were killed and 137 were injured. The U.S. blamed Libya for financing the Rome and Vienna terrorist attacks. But more importantly, both the hijacking of TWA Flight 847 and the Rome-Vienna attacks in 1985 made the U.S. look weak in the face of terrorism. Public perception was that terrorism was on the rise, and states that sponsored terrorism didn't face stiff consequences for their support of terrorist organizations. The Reagan administration wanted to push back against this perceived expansion of state-sponsored terrorism, and they became determined to stand up to Libya early the following year. In early 1986, the U.S. sends a massive naval force 
to just off the coast of Libya. This force consists of three aircraft carriers, 12 destroyers, five cruisers, six frigates, hundreds of aircraft, and 27,000 sailors in the Navy. In January and February 1986, the U.S. Naval Force engages in military exercises, and there isn't a notable response from Libyans during these initial exercises. But on March 24, 1986, during the third round of military operations, the U.S. Naval Force crosses that line of death, moving all three of its aircraft carriers south of the line into the Gulf of Sidra, and an altercation with the Libyans ensued. During the day, the Libyans fired missiles at American aircraft that missed their targets, while American ships and planes fired missiles at Libyan warships, sinking two of them, damaging two more. 72 Libyans were killed during this confrontation. Two weeks later, on April 5, 1986, in what many believe was Libya's response to the recent naval battle on the Gulf of Sidra, a bomb explodes near the disc jockey booth at La Belle Discotheque in West Berlin, Germany. This nightclub was frequented by many American service members. Three human beings were killed, two of which were U.S. soldiers, and an additional 229 were injured. The Americans intercepted a message from Libya to the Libyan embassy in East Berlin, commending them on the success of the operation. Now, once the Americans had this incriminating message, proving the Libyans were behind the Berlin terrorist attack, they decided it was time to hit Libya hard. Ten days after the Berlin bombing, on April 15, 1986, the U.S. launched airstrikes on a number of targets in Libya, including Gaddafi's house. In just under 12 minutes of bombing, around 60 Libyans were killed from these airstrikes, including one infant that was claimed to be Gaddafi's adopted daughter. Two Americans were killed when their fighter jet was shot down. A number of planes that participated in this airstrike took off from British bases, which the Libyans kept in mind. Five months later, in September 1986, Terrorists hijacked Pan Am Flight 73 in Karachi, Pakistan. This attack led to the deaths of 20 during the shootout that followed. Many saw this act of terrorism as the Libyan response to the U.S.-led April 1986 bombing. Lastly, in our chain of events concerning Libya in the 1980s, in September 1987, Libya was involved in a conflict on its southern border with the country Chad. In 1983, Libya invaded a portion of northern Chad and held the territory for a number of years, but in 1987, with the aid of American satellite intelligence, forces in Chad pushed the Libyans out of their country, attacked a Libyan airbase on Libyan soil, killing over 1,700 Libyans, destroying Libyan tanks, aircraft, and burning all sorts of military equipment. This battle forces the Libyans to agree to a ceasefire, freeze northern Chad from Libyan occupation. Gaddafi is completely humiliated from this loss and blames the Americans and French for aiding his southern neighbor. So to sum things up, this is the status of foreign relations between Iran and the United States and Libya and Western democracies in December 1988. The Americans accidentally shot an Iranian plane out of the sky, killing 290 Iranians, and the Iranians have said, we will have a response for you someday. The Libyans and Americans have basically been engaged in an undeclared war, with Americans flying military exercises close to Libya, dropping bombs on Libya, and assisting armies at war with Libya. 
Libya responds to these American actions with terrorist attacks and financial support for terrorist organizations. So the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth during the 1980s. One side hits the other, then the other side strikes back in whatever way they can. So back to December 21st, 1988. What else is going on in December of 1988? Well, some loved and cherished human beings are trying to fly home from Europe to the United States to be with their families for Christmas. 35 college kids from Syracuse University that were studying abroad for the fall semester bought tickets to return home on Pan Am Flight 103. As I stated earlier, Flight 103 was planned to be a three-leg flight. The first leg, Flight 103A, was a flight from Frankfurt to London using a Boeing 727 that took off from Frankfurt at 4.54 p.m. local time. 49 passengers on board this first flight would connect to the second leg of the flight, Flight 103, from London to New York. The plane used for the London to New York leg was a 747 that had just flown from San Francisco to London earlier that day, landing at Heathrow at 12.10 p.m. and parking at gate 14 just outside Terminal 3. The Boeing 727 used for flight 103A, the flight from Frankfurt, lands at Heathrow at 5.40 p.m. after a one-hour and 46-minute flight. The 727 parks at gate 16, close to the 747, making an easy transfer of passengers and baggage. Bags in the Boeing 727 were loaded into the cargo hold individually, held in place during the first leg of Flight 103 with loose netting. For the second leg, from London to New York on the 747, bags were loaded into large metal baggage containers that were filled up. Then these boxy metal baggage containers were loaded into the cargo hold of the 747. 43 bags of U.S. military mail are loaded into the cargo hold as well. The passengers of Flight 103 from London to New York came from several different places. 49 came from the Frankfurt flight. A number of them came from other connecting flights. Some were just in London and just looking to get to New York or Detroit. As the Frankfurt flight arrives and passengers start to deplane, passengers are already boarding the 747 at gate 14. The flight crew is looking over its pre-flight checklist as baggage handlers are loading filled-up baggage containers into the hold. The flight plan for Flight 103 is to take off from London and head north, flying over Scotland before turning to the west, heading over Ireland and cruising above the Atlantic Ocean, eventually going down the eastern coastline of North America to New York. On the 747, there's 10 abreast seating in economy, with rows of three seats on one side of the plane, a middle section of four seats, and rows of three seats on the opposite side of the plane. There's 244 ticketed passengers, but as the cabin doors are sealed just after 6 p.m., only 243 passengers are on board. One passenger at London Heathrow mistakenly missed the boarding call and subsequently misses Flight 103. At 6.04 p.m., Flight 103 pushes back from Gate 14. After about 20 minutes of taxiing and waiting to wiggle through the congested airport, at 6.25 p.m. on December 21, 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 blasts down runway 27R at London Heathrow, lifting its nose and taking off into the sky en route to JFK Airport in New York. The 747 initially flies northwest to the Burnham VOR, changing its heading to 350 and heading north. 
To keep clear of planes that are above them flying a holding pattern, Flight 103 maintains an altitude of 6,000 feet before it gains clearance to climb to 12,000 feet. In the main cabin, 243 passengers are settling in for what they expect will be a seven-hour flight. Flight attendants start offering drink service and distributing menus for the meal service that will follow. Flight 103 is then given clearance for flight level 310, 31,000 feet, and at 6.56 p.m., 31 minutes into the flight, as the 747 flies just northwest of the Pole Hill VOR, which is located just to the southeast of Burnley, Flight 103 reaches its cruising altitude of 31,000 feet, and the flight crew switches on the autopilot. First Officer Wagner dials in frequency 123.95, and Captain Macquarie radios over to Scottish Area Control Center at Prestwick Airport. Good evening, Scottish. Clipper 103. We are at level 310. First Officer Wagner then says, Clipper 103, requesting oceanic clearance. Flight 103 is flying above the Scottish town of Castlemilk, three miles south of Lockerbie. Before the flight crew can receive a response, at 7.02 p.m. and 50 seconds, on December 21, 1988, an explosion rips a 20-inch hole in the lower left side of the 747's fuselage, towards the front of the plane. Shock waves from the blast race along the inner walls of the fuselage, causing the nose of the plane, containing the cockpit and some of the first-class section, to start to peel off from the rest of the plane. The nose of the plane then bends upward like the top of a soup can, still attached to the rest of the plane before breaking off a few seconds later and striking the number three engine as it falls away. Within three seconds of the blast, the nose of the plane, the number three engine, and the rest of the fuselage with the wings attached are all falling separately towards Earth. When the blast occurred, the 747 was flying north at 500 miles per hour, with the small Scottish town of Lockerbie located three miles to the north and below. Stored in the wings of the 747 was enough jet fuel to fly for seven hours from London to New York, 200,000 pounds worth. As the fuselage with the wings still attached plummets towards the ground, the tail and a chunk of the rear fuselage breaks off and falls separately. After initially maintaining forward momentum as it fell between 31,000 and 19,000 feet, the wing section, with the middle fuselage still attached, suddenly starts a near-vertical dive at 19,000 feet towards the town of Lockerbie directly below. The center section of the plane ignites during the dive and looks like a meteor hurling towards the earth at 500 miles per hour. Residents in the small town of Lockerbie, a village with about 3,500 residents, hear a loud rumbling, increasing in volume with each second outside their homes a few minutes past 7 p.m. This disturbing sound turns into a violent shaking of the ground, like an earthquake is hit as the wing section of Flight 103 slams into five homes in the cul-de-sac of Sherwood Crescent in Lockerbie, Scotland. The force of this 200,000 pounds of fuel and metal slamming into the ground at 500 miles per hour is basically like a bomb was dropped on the village. Five homes were instantaneously obliterated, and the 11 human beings inside them were killed immediately. 46 seconds elapsed between the explosion on board Flight 103 and the wreckage impacting the ground. A fireball was sent 300 feet up into the sky, and the blast was so strong that it was registered as a seismic event 
according to the British Geological Survey, it showed up on their charts as a 1.6 on the Richter scale. It was reported that a piece of window frame from one of the houses that was impacted was found three miles away from the site of the impact. Residents of Lockerbie described coming out of their homes and finding that all their surrounding houses were on fire. The street was on fire. Lawns and trees were on fire. In a matter of seconds, it seems as though the whole town has been transformed into a war zone. Another chunk of the fuselage crashed on a nearby street, Rosebank Crescent, destroying another home. A large number of passengers were found in this area. The cockpit and forward section of the fuselage was found in a field two and a half miles to the east of Lockerbie. The name of the plane, Clipper Made of the Seas, was visible on the side of the cockpit wreckage, and this was the most iconic image from the crash of Flight 103. It was seen again and again on news programs and magazine covers across the globe during the months and years ahead. The town of Lockerbie quickly sprang into action. Concerned residents went house to house to check on their neighbors and see if they could offer any assistance. Off-duty nurses and doctors showed up at the local hospital wanting to aid in any rescue effort. Police, paramedics, and firefighters rushed to the scene of the blast to see if they could offer any help. Extra blood supplies were quickly sent to the town and hospital. After eagerly waiting around for a few hours to see if any survivors or any injured persons would arrive, disappointingly, nurses and doctors were sent home after it became evident that no one was showing up at the hospital and there would be no survivors. All 259 human beings on Flight 103 were killed on December 21, 1988. 11 residents of Lockerbie were also killed from the impact of the wreckage on the town. In addition to the five homes that were completely destroyed, 21 other homes were demolished after the fires due to extensive damage. One of Flight 103's engines buried itself so deeply in the earth that it severed the neighborhood's water main. This complicated efforts by the local fire department to put out the blazes because when they went to get their fire hoses going, there wasn't any water pressure or water to fight the flames. The next day, aerial shots of the town showed the extent of the damage, where the wings and fuel slammed into the ground just off to the side of the M74 motorway. It looked as though a massive iron claw had come down out of the sky and scratched out five homes in the earth below them. The blast left a crater 154 feet long and displaced 1,500 tons of earth. Wreckage was strewn across an 845-square-mile area surrounding the town of Lockerbie. The next morning, over 1,500 police and military officers joined in the search for passengers and the collection of debris that would be crucial for the investigation into what caused the downing of Flight 103. Every piece of evidence is painstakingly cataloged as though it's part of a criminal investigation. Four million pieces of wreckage were collected and documented. The Air Accidents Investigation Branch, the FBI, and Dumfries and Galloway Constabulary all combined efforts to launch the world's largest criminal probe at the time. Immediately after the incident, every whack job under the sun called up to claim it was the work of their little terrorist organization. One caller claimed the plane was brought down by the Iranian National Guard. Another said it was Israeli agents. Another claimed it was Irish Unionist. Yet another said it was Islamic Jihad. Everyone's trying to control the narrative, use this tragedy to gain attention and get publicity for their cause. 
Investigators don't make any assumptions in the beginning. Initially, they think structural failure might have been a possible cause of the accident. After all, the plane was 18 years old and was heavily used. They lower an investigator into the cockpit to gather information before they start moving it from the field where it rests. And they discover that the autopilot was engaged and the oxygen masks are still stowed, which communicated to them that there wasn't an ongoing emergency on the flight deck at the time of the breakup. Whatever happened, happened quickly without the pilots having time to react. On Christmas Eve 1988, a few days after the incident, burns were discovered on a baggage compartment rail consistent with the type of burns one would find from a heat generated by an explosive material. Further searching of the surrounding fields found another baggage compartment rail with similar attributes. On December 28th, one week after Flight 103, at a news conference, it was announced by Michael Charles, lead investigator of the AAIB, that it has been established that two parts of the metal luggage pallet's framework show conclusive evidence of a detonating high explosive. So from Christmas Eve 1988 going forward... Investigators know what brought down Pan Am Flight 103. There was a bomb inside of a baggage compartment container in the cargo hold. Question now is who did it? How did this bomb get on the plane? Was there any evidence in that pile of 4 million pieces of wreckage that was stored in a 5-acre military hangar outside of Lockerbie that would help point them in the direction of the people guilty of this crime? Well, while teams are collecting evidence, categorizing wreckage items, and trying to fit the four million pieces of the world's most complicated and important jigsaw puzzle together, investigators start looking over a few recent events that might serve as clues in their investigation. First off, on December 5th, 1988, 16 days before the bombing, an anonymous caller contacted the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland, and told them that in the next two weeks, a Finnish woman would unknowingly carry a bomb in her luggage on board a Pan Am flight from Frankfurt to the United States. The FAA issued a security notice about this threat. Apparently, they investigated the caller and found out that he commonly made calls to the embassy with similar information, and it was determined that he did not have any vital information to the attack. It was pretty coincidental, though. Next, investigators looked at a raid conducted by German police in October 1988, a few months prior, where 17 men were arrested during home and business raids in Neues, Germany. Some of those arrested were thought to be high-level members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, a Syrian militant group with Iranian ties known as the PFLPGC. Prior to the raid, the German feds were tipped off by an informant that they should be expecting to find five Toshiba bomb beat cassette radios that were converted into bombs. However, the German feds only found four. Apparently, one of the devices was able to slip through the cracks and went unaccounted for. Investigators then took time to sift through the evidence left behind from the wreckage, and they found that 56 pieces of an antique Samsonite 4000 suitcase were recovered over the 845-square-mile wreckage zone. The fact that this suitcase was blown into so many pieces pointed to it being the piece of luggage that the bomb was placed inside of. The Samsonite 4000 was a suitcase that was only sold in the Middle East, and only a few thousand of them were ever manufactured by Samsonite. 
Investigators then focused on pieces of baby's clothing that they found, and a few other pieces of clothing stained with the plastic explosive residue, including a gray slalom shirt, which a piece of circuit board was found in, that also seemed to be in close proximity to the explosion. The clothing was determined to have come from a Maltese clothing manufacturer due to a label on the baby clothing and a number that was stamped on a pair of trousers. The Yorkie Clothing Company in Malta made the clothing, and from the stamped number on the pants, they were able to determine that a store called Mary's Store in Malta was the place where the clothing was sold. Investigators interviewed the owner of the clothing store in Malta named Tony Gauci. Gauci said that on December 7, 1988, he sold a man with a Libyan accent some trousers and a couple other pieces of clothing. The owner of the store said that this Libyan man stood out in his mind because he gathered up clothing rather indiscriminately, didn't try on any of the clothes to see if it fit or not, and that was unusual compared to his typical customers that would take their time, use a dressing room, and see how a pair of pants or a shirt might fit them. Gauchi also mentioned selling the man an umbrella, which investigators hadn't discovered yet, but once Gauchi informed them of this umbrella, they took a look at the evidence from the wreckage and found the umbrella that Tony Gauchi was referring to, and determined that it was also close in proximity to the blast. Forensic examinations were able to confirm the presence of chemicals used for Semtex, a plastic explosive that was used for the bomb. Amongst the debris recovered, investigators found pieces of circuit board and a damaged user manual for a Toshiba RTSF-16 bomb beat cassette recorder. 80% of the sales of this Toshiba model cassette recorder happened in Libya. A piece of the circuit board was found on the baggage container in which the Samsonite suitcase was placed inside of. So at this point, let's do a short recap. Investigators know that a Toshiba bomb beat radio was modified and turned into a bomb using plastic explosive. This radio was placed inside a Samsonite suitcase that was only sold in the Middle East, and only a few thousand were made. Inside the suitcase with the bomb was a bunch of clothing purchased in Malta by a man with a Libyan accent that just bought the clothes and didn't seem to care if they fit or not. So next in the story, investigators found another piece of circuit board in the evidence pile that baffled them didn't match up with the Toshiba bomb beat radio. After months of tedious work, trying to identify where this piece of circuit board, this tiny valuable clue came from, it was determined that the piece was from a MST-13 timer. It matched up with the timer the CIA had seized recently in North Africa. This timer was the triggering mechanism for the improvised bomb. It was discovered that a Swiss company, Mebo, manufactured these timers. One of the owners of Mebo, Edwin Bollier, told investigators that in December 1988, his company received an order for 20 MST-13 timers from Libyans. Bollier said initially that he had trouble fulfilling the Libyans' order, so he tried to give them 40 of a different kind of timer, Olympus timers, but the Libyans complained and said that the replacement timer was an inferior product and they wanted the MST-13 timers that they had originally ordered. Bollier also notified investigators that Mebo rented office space to a few Libyans in Zurich. One of these Libyans he rented to was Abdelbasit al-Magrahi. Following this lead, investigators started looking into the background on this al-Magrahi 
and discovered that he was trained as a flight dispatcher by Libyan Arab Airlines. In 1985, he was the head of airline security for the Libyan External Security Organization. Al-Megrahi was also suspected of being in the Libyan Security Service. On February 15, 1991, a picture of Al-Megrahi was shown to Tony Gauci, the clothing store owner from Malta. Gauci identified Al-Megrahi in the picture, saying he closely resembled the person that purchased the clothing from his store around December 7, 1988. Airline receipts also confirmed that Al-Megrahi was in Malta on December 7th. Next, investigators discovered that Al-Megrahi occasionally used a pseudonym, Ahmed Khalifa Abdusamad. Under this alias, Al-Megrahi had checked into a Holiday Inn in Malta on December 20th, 1988, the day before the bombing of Flight 103. The morning of the bombing, December 21st, a call was placed from Al-Megrahi's hotel room to the residence of the station manager for Libyan Arab Airlines at Luka Airport in Malta. This station manager was investigated, and a diary of his was found. In his diary on December 15, 1998, the station manager wrote, Take tags from the Maltese airline. So why is this entry important? Well, German authorities in Frankfurt had been looking over the baggage handling records for December 21, 1988, trying to see if there were any discrepancies where suspicious luggage might have been loaded onto Flight 103A, the Boeing 727 that flew from Frankfurt to London, the first leg of Flight 103. What they had discovered was that, according to their records, at 1.07 p.m. on the day of the bombing, baggage handlers at Frankfurt Airport were coding luggage from Air Malta Flight 180, a flight that had occurred earlier that morning from Malta. They discovered that one piece of luggage was coded for flight 103A at 1.07 p.m., the same time baggage handlers were dealing with all the luggage from the Air Malta flight. No passengers transferred from the Air Malta flight to Pan Am flight 103. So what this communicated to investigators was that one piece of luggage was taken from the Air Malta flight, put on Pan Am flight 103A, and no corresponding passenger was accompanying this baggage. Finally, things that hit a breaking point in the investigation where authorities felt they had their man. There's the combination of this baggage record that seemed to indicate that a piece of luggage came from Malta the morning of the bombing and made its way onto Flight 103, coupled with Al-Megrahi being in Malta the morning of December 21st, using a fake name, making phone calls to a station manager at the Malta airport, a station manager for a Libyan airline that's apparently writing in his diary notes, taking tags from a Maltese airline a few days before. You can add the clothing store owner identifying Al-Megrahi as the man that purchased the clothes and umbrella traced to the Samsonite suitcase. There's the Mebo owner that made the timer used for the bomb, sold the timer to Libyans, and rented an office space to Al-Megrahi. All signs are pointing to Al-Megrahi. Additionally, the CIA had an informant inside the Libyan intelligence service that claimed that Al-Megrahi was an intelligence officer. This informant said that he had seen Al-Megrahi in December 1988 at the airport in Malta with a brown hard-shelled suitcase similar to the Samsonite suitcase and was accompanied by three other Libyans. On November 13, 1991, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Al-Megrahi 
and El Amin Khalifa Fahima, the station manager at the Malta airport. It took eight years of negotiations, but finally in 1999, both Libyans were extradited for an unusual trial that was held at a U.S. Air Force base located in the Netherlands, presided over by Scottish judges. The trial took place from May 2000 to January 2001. Prosecution built their case on the testimony of the clothing store owner, Tony Gauci, their CIA informant that claimed to see Al-Megrahi with the suitcase in Malta, and Mebo founder Edwin Bollier that claimed that he had sold the MST-13 timers to Libya. The evidence from the trial, just as pretty much everything concerning Pan Am Flight 103, is heavily debated. Many people point out that the CIA informant was being paid by the U.S. government, so maybe he lacked impartiality. Tony Gauci at times seemed confused on the stand. He had said that other pictures of men that weren't McGrahi looked like the man he had sold clothing to. The defense argued that Mebo sold the MST-13 timer to East Germans, not just Libyans. On January 31, 2001, the court found Al-Megrahi guilty of 270 counts of murder. and He was sentenced to life in prison, while the second man on trial, Al-Amin Khalifa Fahima, was found not guilty after evidence surfaced which showed that he was in Sweden at the time of the bombing. Al-Megrahi filed several appeals and was eventually released from prison in August 2009 after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. As an act of compassion, yet still a controversial move, he was released and allowed to return to Libya, where he was given almost a hero's welcome, with Gaddafi meeting him at the airport and giving him a hug in front of the cameras. British doctors that had examined Al-Megrahi thought he only had three months to live in August 2009, but Al-Megrahi went on to live till May 20th, 2012, almost four years after his release. Even his release spawned conspiracy theories. It's claimed that British Petroleum was negotiating an oil deal with Libya at the time, and that the release of Al-Megrahi was done to curry favor with Gaddafi so the deal would get done. In 2003, Libya formally accepted responsibility at the UN for the bombing of Flight 103 and agreed to pay $2.7 billion in damages to victims' families. This fund was set up to address a number of different terrorist attacks that occurred during the 1980s, even though Libya admitted guilt, some would argue they did so just to get rid of the crippling sanctions that were imposed on the country at the time. So how did Pan Am Flight 103 make flying safer? Well, just like many other terrorist attacks and disasters in human history, Flight 103 was a wake-up call in regards to baggage security for the airline industry. Somehow a bag from Malta, without a corresponding passenger was allowed to be loaded onto Flight 103A out of Frankfurt, then transferred to Flight 103 in London. In 1985, Air India Flight 182 was brought down above the Atlantic Ocean by a bomb, and a new regulation was put in place that all baggage on a plane must be checked against a passenger manifest to make certain there aren't any rogue or suspicious bags on board. Even though this new regulation existed, it was routinely ignored. The FAA fined Pan Am for 19 security violations in December 1988. Pan Am was found liable in a $300 million lawsuit for failing to catch the security breach that led to a bomb making its way into the cargo hold on Flight 103. So Flight 103 was a painful lesson to all airlines that baggage security was incredibly important. After Flight 103, baggage was inspected much more thoroughly 
underwent more rigorous examination. Bags are x-rayed, and all bags flying must have a corresponding passenger on board. Now baggage and baggage containers are sealed when unattended and are under constant surveillance. A special session of ICAO was held in February 1989, where it was agreed that security regulations, training, and quality control would be improved, which has contributed to making air travel more safe and cargo more secure. Libya's isolation after Flight 103 sent a warning to all other state sponsors of terror of the harmful economic impact that participating in such crimes would result in. Pan Am Flight 103 was also a clue for airlines to conduct more rigorous background investigations of employees. It tuned everyone into the insider threat. Al Megrahi was an airline security manager, and if people like him had access behind the scenes in airports, something was bound to go wrong. This event taught airlines that they needed to perform extensive background checks before hiring and keep a close eye on their employees to ensure the safety and security of the flights that they operate. So that's how Flight 103 made flying safer for us today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's bring in Tess. What did you think about the story of Flight 103? Any aspects of the story that jumped out at you? Yeah, Michael. I found the story absolutely fascinating, and I was with you the entire way through. I kept thinking as you were talking about a jigsaw puzzle for Mm -hmm. some reason. It kind of felt like investigating this incident was sort of like solving a jigsaw puzzle that you don't know what the picture is. Yeah. And as the picture starts to come together, you kind of start to realize what individual pieces are, and you know what you're looking for. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I mean, they did have 4 million pieces of uh, wreckage, and they probably just had to start putting stuff together, and certain things caused questions, like, why is this Samsonite suitcase in 56 pieces? Right, exactly, yeah. And even that detail you mentioned about the umbrella, mm-hmm. they found out that this this suspicious man had purchased a whole bunch of clothes and an umbrella, and suddenly they knew, hey, we have to look for an umbrella. They yeah. might not have 
realized what they needed to look for had they not done that detective work. Yeah, it was a bit of an aha moment and something that they weren't planning. You know, if they went and saw Tony Gauchi and gave him all these clues and just kind of led him on, he could just be like, yep, yep, yep. And that's not as, you know, reputable as saying, hey, he also got an umbrella. And then they're like, well, you didn't notice an umbrella. And then they notice it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, It reminded me also of just sort of investigating a crime scene where you have all this evidence and you have to reverse engineer it to figure out what happened, what the story was that led up to it. Yeah, there was a lot of people, thousands of people, millions of pieces of evidence, and they were able to put it, put it together. At least this is the official story. Yeah. Another thing that really struck me and shocked me was Al-Magrahi being released. Yeah. That was really uh, just the fact that he might have been released just simply as a political strategic move is really appalling. Yeah. I mean, considering the crime. 270 murders. Yeah, I think that's huge. But I think there was a law in Scottish law or English law that if you had three months or less to live, they let you out. I don't think anybody saw him living for four years. And that increased, you know, public outcry because he was able to live so long. Also, the way he was received in Libya. It was like he was a hero coming home. It's like, way to go. You killed 270 people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed like um, the fact that it could have potentially been like a strategic move mm-hmm. um, made it all the more appalling. I agree with you. There's just so many elements to this story where everything's under question. The trial, Al McGrahi, did he do it alone? Is he just the fall guy for this? I think uh, there's just a lot of uh, everything's open to interpretation. It seems like the evidence is heavily questioned. Who actually did it's heavily questioned. Al McGrahi being let out of jail early is heavily questioned. Why was he let out of jail? All those things, I think, lead to more questions than answers. Yeah, definitely. I I found myself wondering about that second uh, man who was on trial who ended up being in Sweden and exonerated. Yeah, it said in the evidence that they called there was a call from the Holiday Inn to the station manager. Maybe it was just to his residence and maybe there was no actual phone call that happened. So maybe that's why he was let off. Obviously, he had some evidence that he was in Sweden, enough to convince the judges to let him go. Hmm. I always feel like I latch onto one little aspect of a story of a crash or incident. Yeah. For me, on this flight, I felt like the story of the doctors and nurses of Lockerbie showing up was really touching to me. Yes. That I imagine if something horrible happened outside my house, my immediate reaction would be, I'm scared. I'm scared of you know, going outside, outside's dangerous. But that's not how the people of Lockerbie reacted. A lot of them showed up like it was game time and they were off duty, but they showed up at the hospital knowing something horrible happened in the world and they wanted to be a part of helping. And I thought that's a really touching aspect of of the story. I totally agree. I had that same thought and it made me think of what's going on right now all the frontline workers and just how courageous they are and how beautiful it is that we have people in our society who who do that, who risk their lives to help other people. Yeah, put their own health at risk for the greater good. Apparently, a number of families around the world that lost loved ones came to Lockerbie to visit the site of the crash. There's a number of stories out there about Lockerbie residents visiting with these families and sharing meals with them, just being a comforting presence to these suffering and grieving human beings. Lockerbie even set up a support group to help families when they arrived. Robert Redette, 
chairman of the Lockerbie Community Council, said, It is the Scottish heritage to be resilient and hospitable, and Lockerbie is no exception. We knew the relatives would feel apprehensive, and we wanted them to understand that we are a united family and that they, they would always be welcome here. I think it's pretty touching that this town opened its doors and hearts to people that were in need of a hug or a consoling conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I found that touching as well. I mean, I think it was a tragedy for the community as well. Five mm-hmm. homes destroyed. Uh, what was it? 11 people Yeah. on the ground were killed. So they were reeling as well. Yeah, a lot of them saw kind of awful things too. They went outside their house and found uh, victims of plane crashes. And I think a lot of people think Lockerbie and might think, hey, that's where the bombing occurred. But I think you should think about Lockerbie and think of where this heroic effort came from of people that showed up at the hospital, people that pulled in these victims' families and took care of them. I personally would love to visit Lockerbie and have a beer sometime. As would I. Josephine Donaldson, a resident of Lockerbie, found a handbag in her garden belonging to 21-year-old victim of Flight 103, Nicole Bullinger. Josephine said that she saw Nicole's mother on TV waiting for her daughter at the airport in New York and was heartbroken. Now twice a year on Nicole's birthday and on the day of the accident, December 21st, she leaves flowers on the memorial at the local cemetery. She said in an interview, I just felt I had to do it. I had a son, and if that happened in America and I never got him home, I would have hoped someone would have done the same. Wow, that's beautiful. Another thing that really struck me about this disaster was how it felt almost like, for the town at least, like a natural disaster. It was as if a meteor came down and hit the town. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think most people described it as a meteor coming out of the sky, and it even registered a 1.6 on the Richter scale. So it was like an earthquake, a natural disaster hit the town. Yeah, I think it was also, for me at least, a really sobering reminder of how unpredictable life can be. Yeah. We kind of have this illusion of control over our lives that stories like this remind us, you know, anything could happen. Even even in the comfort of our own home, something could happen. I'm not trying to be alarmist in saying that, but that's kind of something that was at the back of my mind. No, it's definitely true. It's just dumb luck that some people got to live past December 21st, 1988, and some didn't. um, Speaking of that, Jeswant Basuta was the man that had a ticket for Flight 103, but he was distracted and drinking in an airport bar while the plane was boarding. He was having some beers with some relatives when he noticed his air and started walking towards the gate. He told someone about his situation as he was walking towards the plane. They told him to run to the gate, so he started running. When Mr. Basuta arrived at the gate, he could see the 747 used for Flight 103 out the window, but a Pan Am employee stopped him, told him it was too late, the cabin doors had been sealed, and the plane was pushing off from the gate. He asked the Pan Am employee to help him get a later flight so he could join his family in New York, but all the flights in the following days were booked due to Christmas travel. Mr. Basuta said he was really frustrated with himself, so he started cursing at himself and sat down in a chair in the airport to think about what he was going to do next. 25 to 30 minutes pass, and two policemen come up to him and start asking him questions about why he missed his flight. They inform him that the plane had just crashed in Lockerbie and take him to a police area for hours of questioning. His family back in New York was contacted by a travel agent and told that he had died. (gasps) 
Eventually, the police let him call home, and a policeman informs his wife that her husband is actually alive. He said that the wife screamed so loud that the policeman had to hold the receiver away from his ear. He was a 47-year-old car mechanic at the time, and he still lives in New York today. Pretty, wow. ama- pretty amazing story. Yeah, that is an absolutely amazing story. According to the coroner's report, two passengers found in a surrounding field outside Lockerbie were deemed to have injuries that were survivable if they had been found and attended to earlier. Obviously, the massive scale of the wreckage area, 845 square miles, made it difficult to find all the passengers in a timely fashion. But that was yet another sad aspect of this story. If they could have lucked out and found these two individuals right after the crash, there might have been two survivors of Flight 103. When the German police raided the terrorist cell in Neues, Germany in October 1988, they confiscated four Toshiba radios that were modified into bombs. A month after Flight 103, an explosive ordnance disposal expert was performing an examination on one of these devices, and it triggered an explosion, killing the expert. Oh, my God. Yet another victim of that terror cell. There's a frontline film on Flight 103 called My Brother's Bomber. And in it, the filmmaker Ken Dornstein, whose brother David was killed on Flight 103, talks to the widow of Badri Hassan, a friend of Al-Magrahi, and an airline executive. She tells the filmmaker that she always suspected that her husband was somehow involved in the downing of Flight 103. One other interesting detail is that Libyan officials were interviewed before Al-Magrahi's trial, and they admitted that they furnished Al-Magrahi with a passport for his other alias, Ahmed Khalifa Abdusamad. It was under this name that he flew from Tripoli to Malta on December 20th, the day before the bombing, and checked into a Holiday Inn under that alias. The CIA informant testified that Magrahi, who was well-connected in the Libyan airline scene, put a Samsonite suitcase in the cockpit of this flight from Tripoli to Malta on December 20th. Sex Pistol Johnny Rotten and his wife had two first-class tickets for Flight 103, but they were running late packing their bags, so they switched flights to the next day. Kim Cattrall from Sex in the City was also sp- supposed to be on Flight 103, but she wanted to do some last-minute shopping in London and rebooked on a flight later that day. Wow, so that was a lucky mistake. Yeah, definitely. One other little detail, Flight 103 was carrying a large shipment of sewing needles, So dogs that joined the search kept getting needles on their paws. Oh, poor doggies. Yeah, but they were out there helping out. (laughs) Now it's time for today's interview. Today on PCPC, we're joined by a listener and a witness to the wreckage site a few days after Flight 103. Let's welcome Anthony Friedel. Hi, guys. How are you doing? How's it going in 2020? I'm okay. Yeah, it's good. Thanks. I'm finally getting past this coronavirus time of lockdown here in the UK. Yeah. Where exactly in England are you? I'm in the Midlands in the centre near Birmingham. Nice. Um, So how is life there right now? Are you guys on lockdown? Are people feeling more comfortable as cases are going down? Yeah, things are going much better and lockdown is slowly easing. We've still got to be careful. But um, but yeah, people can go out and um, we can go and see friends and family now. So it's uh, it's getting a bit better than it was before. That sounds good. I hope that we in the U.S. get there soon. So you reached out to us and told us about how back in December of 1988, you drove past the wreckage of Flight 103 as a young boy while visiting your grandparents for Christmas. I was just wondering if you could talk with us about your memory of the wreckage site, 
when you first heard about the crash of Flight 103 and what you saw when you drove by? Yeah, um, it, it was Christmas. Um, so I, I was only 10 at the time and we'd broken up for Christmas holidays. So we were traveling to go and see my grandparents in Scotland and they live in the sort of southern part of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And we were uh, we kind of go past that kind of area anyway. And obviously a few nights before we'd seen on the television some of the pictures. Uh, and when we went past, uh, Lockerbie's quite a, a sleepy, small place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we got there, it was um, sort of quite sort of deserted, quite quiet. But uh, when we got closer, we realized there was lots of uh, different pieces of wreckage lying around. Uh, and one of the, the points I definitely remember was uh, everywhere where they found a piece of the wreckage or maybe some personal belongings, they left little white ticker tapes to record where it had fell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we got closer into sort of Lockerbie and around that area as we were driving past, uh, this sort of white ticker tape was more and more on, on the trees and on the bushes. And it's quite kind of harrowing to realize that, you know, you'd go past fields and at the bottom of the field, there'd be like, people's shoes and suitcases uh, and all kind of where they've been collected and sort of specially put in special designated areas for collection Mm -hmm. and so quite a lot of personal belongings like suitcases and then there was i remember another part there was a um the the escape chutes uh one of those was was lying there as well and like life vests and things Mm -hmm. and all very peaceful and calm considering there's been so much destruction and and wreckage around and mm-hmm. um, so it was, it was quite quite sobering to see all these pieces and I, as a kid i really i, I love planes i still do and um, but it was quite hard to imagine the planes you see on the ground or in the sky how big they are uh, and then this plane had been sort of blown to to pieces yeah that sounds very eerie it sounds like you almost were driving through a movie set or something yeah, yeah, it was um, very strange. And as I say, at the end of each field, it was everything had been piled very neatly, how they'd gone through very methodical to collect all the pieces. And it was just, just really odd seeing like you know, suitcases and that. Yeah. How do you think the seeing that wreckage, driving through that um, wreckage site, affected you as a 10 year old person? Do you feel like it changed your view of flying in any way? Um. I think it, it, it did scare me a little bit at the sort of around that time when I was 10. Um, because like you say, you'll see them on the telly or flying in the sky or at the airport. You never see them in thousands and thousands of pieces. So to see that, it really kind of shocked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only sort of a few months after that, you, um, the British Midland one crashed as well on um, at Kegworth at Notting, which I think you did an episode at the beginning of this year. Yeah. So there was a lot of accidents and disasters around that time period so yeah it, it did make you think well you know is is air travel safe and that but yeah it is but obviously you got over that and you fly today right yeah yeah um, i was actually supposed to go to america at the end of august um, but unfortunately due to coronavirus I'm actually not going to get to chicago but maybe next year yeah. Did you talk about this with your grandparents at all? Do you um was it a big event in England at the time? Did it affect the community at large? Yeah, very much so. So when when we actually got to them, um they were quite shocked because it, it's just not that it's not too far. It's not that many miles away from where they ha- where it happened. Um and bear in mind it's quite a sleepy Scottish kind of area, so you know, nothing, nothing big ever happens like this. So to have something like such a massive air disaster 
uh, they were quite shocked and we I think we're all quite sort of stunned how kind of close and local it is and I think the community were quite stunned but I, I believe the people in Lockerbie really sort of rallied together and, and helped out. Yeah, I felt like that was, I was telling Tess earlier that that was kind of my favorite aspect of the story is that um, the people in Lockerbie, the doctors and nurses and EMTs all showed up and really pitched in and tried to, you know, offer their help. And they were um, also established a name for themselves for being this consoling force that when American families or any other families that show up and are, you know, visiting the wreckage site that they've taken them into their homes and made them meals and just been a comforting shoulder to um, rest on. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I've seen some of the sort of documentaries about it as well. And they, they were really, the Scottish people were really nice. And I think even some of the belongings, they looked after the belongings and stuff until they were recovered. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you talking to us today. We hope to make it over to the UK sometime and um, visit Lockerbie, maybe hang out wherever you are and grab a beer. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in the Midlands near Birmingham, so I'm, I'm in the Midlands of um, middle of England. So yeah, yeah. Always welcome, both of you guys. Sounds good. On a lighter note, before we let you go, do you have a favorite airline or a favorite airport? Um, I, I like Virgin Atlantic um, because my first sort of long haul flight was to America in 2009. And we, uh, me and my friend flew to San Francisco. I'm a big 49ers fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's the first time I'd gone on like a proper, you know, proper really big plane, a jumbo jet. And it was like, wow, this is just massive. Yeah. Rather than just the little, sh- little short hops in Europe, like on the little 737s and that. This was just uh, just a whole other level. Yeah, no, that is pretty cool. I remember the first time I was on a huge plane, and it feels so massive. It feels like you're in a building. It just doesn't bounce yeah. around in the sky as easily as those small ones. No, proper smooth, really nice flight it was. Well, Ant, it was great to talk with you today. And um, you were telling me earlier before we started the interview that your buddy has a aviation tags. Uh, he's a reseller for that. I thought that was kind of interesting. What exactly is it? Yeah, so um, they they sell um, these kind of metal tags, but they're actually from the skin of aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's an he's an official reseller of uh, aviation tags. So his site is avtags.com. That sounds uh, so cool. And they're like little key little key rings. Uh, you can get different ones from different aeroplanes and different airlines. Um, so yeah, he's got a great site. It's avtags.com. I'll check so, that yeah, out. Check out. There's loads. So that there'll be something there that suits everybody. Sweet. Well, again, thanks for your time. It was an honor to have you on PCPC, and we hope to hang out with you sometime in the future. Definitely. You're always welcome across here, guys. Thanks, buddy. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks again to Ant for chatting with us. It was a pleasure to get to meet him and talk to him. Tess, everyone in the world has an opinion on Flight 103. The incident has spawned tons of conspiracy theories. A lot of people ask, Was Al McGrahi just the fall guy to take the blame? Who else could have been responsible? Let's take a look at some alternative theories. You want to, Tess? Sure, yeah. A popular one is that the PFLPGC, as we talked about earlier, a Syrian militant group with a number of operatives in West Germany, was responsible for the bombing. Strikes many as highly coincidental that this group was busted eight weeks prior to Flight 103, with four Toshiba bomb beat radios that were built into bombs, one of which went missing during the raid. And then Flight 103 is destroyed by a Toshiba bomb beat radio that was converted into a bomb. 
That does seem strange unless terrorist organizations are trading notes. Yeah, maybe they have an allegiance to the Toshiba model that we don't understand for some reason. Clearly, the cell was making bombs to blow up airliners. Some argue that this PFLPGC cell was using a barometric pressure trigger for the bomb, whereas the bomb that detonated on Flight 103 used a timer set to go off after a fixed amount of time. Other critics of this theory point out that the four bombs confiscated were a different Toshiba bomb beat model than the one used on Flight 103, but I still think it's pretty coincidental that, you know, all terrorists in the 80s were using bomb beat radios for bombs. Dr. Richard Fuse, a businessman and CIA agent, testified in a secret 2001 interview with government officials that he had heard directly from 10 to 15 high-level Syrian officials that the PFLPGC under the leadership of Ahmed Jibril, was responsible for the bombing. So that's conspiracy theory number one. The PFLPGC did it. Conspiracy theory number two is that Iran was ultimately responsible for the bombing of Flight 103. In 2014, former Iranian intelligence officer Abul Qasim Misbahi stated that Iranian leader Ayatollah Khomeini ordered the bombing, instructing his operatives to copy exactly what happened to the Iranian Airbus, in reference to Iran Air Flight 655. The U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency had an internal document dated September 24, 1989, that alleged that an Iranian parliament member paid $10 million for the Pan Am bombing. A Lebanese national living in Iran supposedly designed the bomb. The bomb was constructed in Libya and then placed on Flight 103 mistakenly in Germany. According to this narrative, the bomb was actually supposed to go on a different Pan Am flight, a direct flight from Frankfurt to New York with mostly American military personnel, but it was mistakenly put on Flight 103A from Frankfurt to London, then transferred to the 747 used for Flight 103. Another popular theory that seems to me to be the most out there theory is that the CIA was letting Syrian drug dealers smuggle heroin into the United States on board Pan Am flights in exchange for information on terrorist groups in Syria that were holding kidnapped Westerners. This theory argues that terrorists switched one of the drug suitcases with a bomb. A variation on this theory is that two American intelligence officers were on board Flight 103 and they had found out about the covert drug smuggling operation and were on their way to Washington to expose the rogue operation. So the CIA allowed the bomb onto the plane because they wanted to cover up their unapproved drug smuggling operation and take down the two guys that were about to out them. Wow, that's definitely the juiciest conspiracy theory, if I do say so myself. Yeah, it's a little too like Hollywood movie for me. Yeah, well, I would watch that movie. Vincent Canestraro, the chief of operations and analysis at the CIA's counterterrorism center that headed the CIA's investigation into Flight 103, says he believes the PFLP-GC, the Syrian group, planned the attack with the encouragement and financing from Iran after the terrorist cell was discovered and broken up in Western Germany in October 1988 He believes that the mission moved over to Libyan intelligence because there was too much focus and heat on the exposed Libyan group. So that's a blend of all the theories there. I actually think that one makes the most sense to me. Oh, yeah? How why is that? I'm actually not one for conspiracy theories, but I think that this Vincent Canestaro theory seems reasonable, that Iran hires a Syrian group to get revenge for Iran Flight 655, 
Syrian group gets exposed in Germany, so they outsource the task to Libya because there's so much attention on them. Mm, right. Yeah, no, it kind of makes sense. So I guess the big question is, why the cover-up? What would Britain or the U.S. gain by shifting blame solely on Libya? What well, is argued that in the early 1990s, the U.S. knew it was about to go to war with Iraq for its invasion of Kuwait. The U.S. didn't want to completely destabilize the Middle East at once, engaging in war with Iraq shortly after accusing Iran and Syria of blowing up a 747 full of Americans. A second aspect to consider was a number of Westerners were being held in Lebanon by Iranian-backed militant organizations, and the U.S. wanted Iranian and Syrian help to help free their people from the hands of these kidnappers. Accusing them of blowing up Flight 103 would have caused increased tensions and made it all the more difficult to get help in freeing their citizens. A third aspect to consider is that the U.S. wanted Syrian help in the peace process between Palestinians and Israel that was happening at the time. Shielding Syria from blame for Flight 103 could have been seen as a favor to the Syrians. The Americans could ask for help in pushing the peace process along, preventing violence from breaking out in that region of the world while negotiations are taking place. What do you think about that, Tess? I think that's an interesting theory. Yeah. I also think it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility that Americans or British would try and control the narrative the best they can. Absolutely. I mean, they have the power to do it, so why not? Yeah, I think even if you look, it's hard to believe that this was this year, but if you look at what happened this year in January 2020 with the whole Soleimani killing, followed with the Iranian bombing of a U.S. base in Iraq, the U.S. government wasn't completely honest about what happened. After Iran bombed the U.S. base, the U.S. government came out and basically said no casualties, no one was harmed. It was only days or weeks later that it came out that 109 U.S. soldiers suffered brain injuries. That's not exactly insignificant. And I think this was an instance where the American government didn't tell the truth because they wanted to tamp down tensions with Iran. They knew if they came out and said the Iranians gave 109 Americans brain injuries, there would be you know a public outcry for retribution. And the administration would look weak to its base if it allowed something like that to happen and didn't respond. Right. So instead, they just swept it under the rug, pretended like it didn't happen, kind of similar to the choice that they made on Flight 103. Absolutely, yeah. I wonder what our listeners will think of this. I wonder if there are a lot of conspiracy theorists out there or if you guys accept the narrative that Libya was behind it. 100%, yeah. Yeah, if you guys have an opinion, you should email us because we'd be curious to know. Definitely. I think the thing that makes the most sense to me is that... uh, Iran hired a Syrian militant group to put things into uh, motion and that they got kind of uncovered in West Berlin and they pushed it to Libya to finish the job. So I guess, you know, from the American perspective, it's like, hey, if Libya is 100% responsible, we put, you know, them in check. This is horrible PR for Libya and we can get the things we need out of Iran and Syria. So I imagine if you have a family member on flight 103, though, you probably want the whole truth. You don't want to think of your life, the life of your family member being used as a pawn in a game of international politics. Of course. Yeah. Several memorials exist around the globe honoring the victims of flight 103. Syracuse University has a place of remembrance memorial on campus with the names of 35 students that lost their life on flight 103. Each year, Syracuse University gives two students from Lockerbie 
free tuition to attend their college in honor of the connection between the two towns. Wow. Yeah, that was actually something that we didn't talk about, Michael, that I thought was really devastating to imagine being a college student and having 30 of your classmates die in a tragic, tragic accident. Yeah, all those families. All those families excited to have their kid that's been away for, you know, a semester, come home for Christmas. How many people were excited? That is a devastating aspect of the story. Not that any death is feels good, but that's just extra sad. In November 1995, President Bill Clinton dedicated a memorial to the remembrance of Flight 103 at Arlington National Cemetery. In Dreyfusdale Cemetery near Lockerbie, there's a stone wall with all 270 victims' names inscribed. On Sherwood Crescent in Lockerbie, there's a garden and a small memorial with the names of some of the Lockerbie residents that died on December 21st, 1988. In January 1989, many bodies of the victims of Flight 103 were flown back to their families for burial, but 17 victims were never identified. The service was held for those 17 in Lockerbie on January 31st, 1989, and there's a stone with their names on it in the Lockerbie Cemetery. Well, I think that's going to do it for Pan Am Flight 103. Tess, are you ready to hear a few stories from the world of airline news? I am, Michael. We'll start with some sad news. It appears that Boeing has established an end date for the manufacturing of its iconic 747 planes. Boeing currently has orders for 15 747s to be built through the year 2022, but it's looking as though that once these 15 planes are built, the production of 747s will cease. The Queen of the Skies first took to the air commercially in 1970 with Pan Am. It has been a welcome sight in the skies for aviation enthusiasts for the past 50 years. Four billion passengers have flown on 747s over the past five decades. Twelve of the remaining 15 planes are headed to join the UPS freighter fleet. Commercial passenger airlines have been retiring 747s from their fleet, citing the increased fuel efficiency and lower cost of operating long-haul two-engine planes like the 777, 787, and A330. United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz commented on the 747, They have been a grand aircraft for us for a long time, but we have issues with maintenance, parts in particular. If I need a part today, I can't get it. We stripped every plane in the world of its parts to feed the need, and no one is making new parts for this particular aircraft because there's just not as many out there. 1,571 747s were ordered over the plane's history. Qantas just had three farewell flights for their final 747 in their fleet, July 13th in Sydney, July 15th in Brisbane, and July 17th in Canberra. The Qantas 747 flew Jumbo Joy flights, where passengers could fly above their city for an hour in a Qantas 747 for the final time. The Qantas 747 will then be moved to retirement in the Mojave Desert in California. While they'll still be flying around the skies for a while, mostly getting our packages from point A to point B, in about two years, 747s will no longer be manufactured by Boeing and a product of the past. What do you think, Tess? Has the 747 become antiquated over the course of 50 years and is no longer economically feasible for airlines? Or is the queen of the skies yet another victim of cancel culture in 2020? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it's pretty sad, Michael. It feels like the end of an era. Um, But at least she's going out with a bang. People seem to feel pretty good about her. 
to me as a non uh, aviation junkie, just a lay person living in the world, she's always been an airplane that I know and love and recognize. So I'll be sad to see her go. Me too. I love, you know, Air Force One. I love the sight of the 747. It just looks so majestic. I think one thing I also love about the 747 is that it's been around for 50 years, you know? I like that not replacing every single thing we have, just the history of this beautiful, amazing machine that's been, you know, had that such longevity is, you know, beautiful to me. Yeah, it's iconic for sure. I guess the only constant in life is change, Tess. That's right, Michael. Better get used to it. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. I don't have a pipe, but I guess I could make one with an apple. Yeah. That's resourceful. JetBlue is ending its relationship with Long Beach Airport. Truly devastating news to JetBlue lovers in Los Angeles. It's also devastating to Michael Bauer, who I happen to know loves JetBlue flights from Long Beach Airport. True. Very true. (laughs) JetBlue started flying out of Long Beach in August 2001, but will cease all service at Long Beach on October 6, 2020. To compensate, JetBlue is increasing its flights out of LAX and offering six new routes. Now you can take JetBlue to Seattle, San Francisco, Bozeman, Montana, Reno, Austin, Texas, and Salt Lake City out of LAX starting on October 7th. JetBlue will continue to offer service out of Burbank and Ontario for all passengers with an intense loathing of LAX. JetBlue's Scott Lawrence said, The transition to LAX serving as the anchor of our focus city strategy on the West Coast sets JetBlue up for success in Southern California. We continue to seize on opportunities to emerge from this pandemic a stronger competitive force in the industry. What do you think about this JetBlue-related development, Tess? Are you as excited to fly JetBlue from LAX as you were about flying out of Long Beach? I mean, in the pandemic, I don't think it makes a difference, Michael. I've seen the photos. I know what LAX looks like right now. They ain't got crowds anymore. They're they're dead. Everything's empty. Luckily, American, Delta, Hawaiian Airlines, and Southwest all still fly out of Long Beach. So I guess I'm just going to have to book a flight on one of those airlines from now on to get to my beloved Long Beach airport. I am thinking about taking an LAX flight straight to Bozeman, Michael. Yeah, I want to go to Montana, too. Lastly, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Junior Grade Madeline Swigel has entered the history books as the U.S. Navy's first black female tactical fighter pilot. She completed her training and is due to receive her wings of gold later this month. Swigel graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 2017, is part of the Red Hawks of Training Squadron 21, based at Naval Air Station Kingsville in Texas, Tess, what do you think about that? Pretty cool, right? Yeah, it's so awesome. I saw the pictures of her and she looked pretty badass. Yeah, she looks like a boss. You can see a picture online. We'll post it on our Instagram too. That's a good idea. I hope a lot of young girls out there see her picture and say to themselves, hey, I can do that. I agree. Well, I think that's going to do it for episode 27 of PCPC. Thank you, Tess Andrade. Anything you want to say to the people? Michael, thank you for having me as always. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Yeah, thanks to the Patreon crew. You guys have been going off lately. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate the support and my low moments when I see more people coming in and just the amount of people that we've had so far. It makes me just be like, Michael, you have to get to work. So that's what I've been doing. I think we had a record-breaking number of patrons sign up this past week. It it made us feel very good. It was incredible. All you people that we appreciate it. Um, if you want to communicate with us, we're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod, Instagram, we're at Plane Crash Podcast. 
You can go to planecrashpod.com to check out episodes, pictures. We have some merch. I hope you're all hanging in there, working hard, wearing a mask, reading books, exercising, eating healthy, getting plenty of sleep, doing the best you can to help your families and your communities in 2020. I'm going to work hard on getting you guys a new episode as soon as I can. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.